0: Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley.
1: Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 100 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is astronaut Chris Hadfield, the first Canadian to walk in space and also the first Canadian to command the International Space Station. Many of the videos he posted while in orbit became internet sensations, especially his zero-gravity rendition of the David Bowie song Space Oddity, which has been viewed over 20 million times on YouTube. His memoir, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, is out now. We also have an announcement to make, so if you've been listening to the show this past year, you'll know that I've been handling more and more of the interviews myself and that John hasn't always been able to make it to all the panels. In light of that, John's decided that episode 100 would be a good time for him to officially step down as full-time co-host. He'll be staying on as our producer, helping us line up guests and think up panel topics, and he'll continue to appear as a regular guest geek. On a practical level, I don't know if things will really change all that much, but this will just give us more flexibility in terms of scheduling recording sessions without having to worry as much about John's availability. As you might imagine, hosting a podcast takes up a lot of time. And John is going to be really busy this coming year with some major, major projects, some of which we can't officially announce yet. But when we do, you will definitely be excited, and you'll definitely understand why he's going to be so busy.
2: And so for our panel today, we'll be putting the focus on the show itself and just taking a look back at the past four years of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. So be sure to stick around after the interview, as frequent guest geek Matt London joins us to interview Dave and me about our lives, our various projects, and the podcast itself.
1: All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Chris Hatfield. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be with you. All right, so in your new book, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, you mentioned that growing up that one of your interests was reading science fiction, and that's also one of our interests here on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. So I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you first got into reading science fiction and who some of your favorite authors were.
0: Sure. I, I've uh, always liked reading, of course, and, uh, and science fiction just, just pushes the edge of what is exciting and possible and, and at the edge of imagination. And so I, I read uh, several different types of science fiction books growing up. I'm not sure I was as fanatic as some, but I was definitely a lot more than others. Uh, I liked a lot of the, the short stories of Arthur C. Clarke uh, and Isaac Asimov, of course. Uh, I, read, uh, I read some of the uh, early science fiction as well. Uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs and stuff, science fiction, which I found quite interesting, looking at it through sort of the Victorian side. You know, Mysterious Island by Jules Verne, that type of early science fiction, or uh, 20,000 Leagues, those were really interesting to read. And I really enjoyed uh, Canticle for Leibowitz. And, and then The Sheep Look Up, I thought, was was an interesting insight as well.
1: Yeah, in know, interviews. I also saw you mention Alfred Bester and Robert Heinlein.
0: Yeah, and I enjoyed Heinlein as well. I thought uh, he's a very um, original writer and, and, and a lot of uh, original thinking. So, uh, so yeah, I, I and I read it all kind of voraciously. I was not an analytical reader. I wasn't uh, writing reviews for the for anybody at the time. It was mostly just uh, letting those uh, good writers help my Imagination uh, stretch sore.
1: Well, you mentioned Arthur C. Clarke's short stories. Do any of those stories stick out in your mind?
0: Gosh, I I knew you were going to ask the specifics, (laughs) and I didn't study up in advance. Um, There was one, and I I can't remember if was if it was it might have been Asimov or if it was Clarke. I remember one, of course, that uh, they wrote the entire story so they could come up with the pun of a star mangled spanner, which was uh, was kind of disappointing (laughs) to get to. But there was another that. where they they solved the propulsion problem just by punching a hole in I think their water tank on board in order to get uh, a vectored thrust that would uh, that would allow them to to save the day and I, I actually thought of that while I was living on the space station thinking what an, what a clever and interesting idea that uh, because w- when we vent things from the space station or when we vented them from the space shuttle. Um, they're almost always propulsive to some degree. You know, we do our best with T-junctions and T-valves to try and take the propulsive nature of things away, but often uh, they end up different than you expect. And uh, and, and I got to meet Arthur C. Clarke as well and spend a day with him walking around space shuttles at the Kennedy Space Center. I was at his escort for a day back in the, uh, I guess it was the early 90s, which was a fascinating day for me, kind of surreal. Um, to talk to a man who who were I felt obliged to use his middle initial every time yeah. I talked to him, you know, which isn't normally how I how I greet people, um, but uh, he he was such a visionary, such a not just a an author, but but actually the the science that went behind it and the projects he always worked on. And there's an orbit named after them, the Clark Orbit. You know, he he was just so prescient, and he was behind two thousand and one, uh, which became such a uh, an influential movie. When I watched, I watched it when it was first in the theaters as well. So, so yeah, that uh, that crossover was uh, was really important to me. So I'm not sure who wrote that story specifically about the the water dent. I think it was water, but punching a hole in a tank in order to get propulsive um, solution to their problem. But even in uh, in the recent movie Gravity. Uh, basically they, they were looking for the same sort of crazy solution to how do you get propulsion out of the system that isn't going to give it to you. And uh, and, and if I thought when I first read it, I thought that was a clever idea. And I kept that clever idea in the back of my mind, even when I was living in space, just in case.
1: Uh-huh. Well, I, I guess I, I would imagine if you're flying in space that your mind would often go back to science fiction that you've read. It would remind you of things. Was so Were there other examples of that you could think of?
0: Something funny that happened. Uh, I was, I flew in space first back in 1995 on the space shuttle Atlantis, and we went to help build the Russian space station Mir. And one of the most powerful things that you experience in orbit, of course, uh, are the views of the world. Uh, It is such uh, an omnipresent um, and undeniable draw to your eyes and the beauty of it. And When I came back uh, a month or two later, I was sitting with my wife on the couch and we were flicking through the channels and Star Trek came on, the original version of Star Trek with that sort of iconic scene of Kirk sitting in his chair and looking forwards. And there is that view of the world sort of rolling by at orbital speed underneath you. And I was shocked because it was exactly right. And I actually said to my wife, it looks just like that. That's exactly how it looks. And I remember just being delighted at the at the crossover.
1: Uh-huh. Well, you mentioned uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and I saw that you called that the most realistic science fiction movie. Uh, What's something in, that sticks in your mind that's that just is really true to life uh, from that movie?
0: When Dave was outside, or was in the process of trying to uh, fight Hal and... Um, and eventually lobotomize him, what he heard when he was outside on a spacewalk was absolutely dominated by his own breathing. The uh, directors of the movie recognized that it wouldn't be silent outside. If you're wearing a voice-activated microphone and you're out there working hard, you're going to hear your own breath in the the headset, and you're sort of going to be maybe even a little more aware of your own existence because you're alone. Mm-hmm. And it is just you inside some bubble of air that's held around your body in the universe. And uh, when I did spacewalks, uh, I remember remarking to myself after I got over the initial rush of, uh, of seeing the world that way and and uh, paying attention to all my tasks of taking time to start to notice where I really was and comparing it with the um, with the written and movie portrayals of it. And thinking that wow, in 2001, they, they guessed right. They did an accurate portrayal of the sense of aloneness and the uh, and the sounds and, and what it would really be like. And and it uh, it helped be it slightly helped it be slightly more familiar.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And and speaking of Hal, I saw that uh, you tweeted that at one point you were servicing a, a a computer on the space station and noticed that the person on the ground you were talking to was named Hal. <laughs>
0: yeah. <Like>, oh. <uh-oh. laughs> Yeah, that was that was uh, beyond irony, and I couldn't let it pass. But Hal, actually, he was uh, uh, the Hal that I was talking to, uh, had worked for NASA for many years. He's a U.S. Air Force pilot who had retired from the Air Force and come to work for NASA and was uh, very experienced as a Capcom, one of the people working in mission control. And on that day, we had been trying to help out with a major upgrade of the software that commands and controls the whole space station. And as grounded and we had thrown the switch, basically, when the new software was going to take control, we lost control. And basically everything crashed and the vehicle went stupid. And so it it was a a pretty busy afternoon as we tried to recover from from a loss of command and control of a great big ship. But also, I just thought it was funny that it was Hal down there we were talking to and uh, to say, I'm sorry, Hal. That's <laughs> not possible <laughs> right now. And uh, and he, the irony of was not lost on Hal either. But he's he has a pretty dry wit anyway, so he just he just took it in good stride.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and you mentioned Star Trek, and and I saw that you actually you were tweeting to William Shatner.
0: Yeah, not just with William Shatner, but with several members of the cast as well. But that was that was they began that. Social media is a wonderful way to to share communication and, and to share an experience. And when you're doing something on behalf of literally billions of people, it's nice to be able to share it as simply and widely as possible. And so I was using uh, primarily Twitter on board because it, it took the least amount of time for me to share as much information. I could just take a picture and then just send it by a Twitter with a caption to the world. And um, my son, Evan, was uh, managing the ground version of it, looking at all the other all social media sites and working with them and working with regular media and such to try and make sure that people were seeing everything I was sending. And he pointed out to me, he says, Hey, look, William Shatner has written you a note back. You got to reply. Hmm. So I, uh, I, I thought it very funny because, of course, uh, you know, the blending in my mind of fact and fiction when Star Trek was on, was complete. I couldn't tell the difference. I was seven or eight. I couldn't tell the difference between a comic book hero and a real person. And so for James Tiberius Kirk to send me an email, while, or basically or a communique while, while I was actually commanding a space station or living on board a space station, was such a delightful crossover of, of fact and fantasy. I, I just I couldn't let it go by. And so uh, I thought I'd have a little fun with it and just... Uh, typed out a quick answer back to him. And it opened up, uh, I guess handling frequencies, but it opened up communication between us that uh, we ended up having a long conversation afterwards, not just Twitter, but actually uh, he phoned through the Canadian Space Agency up to the space station with a long, really interesting, far-ranging conversation about the future and the work that we were doing and the capability of the spaceships and, and the, the changes in time. And I've spoken to him several times since. And he's, he's a really interesting guy to get to know, which was delightful since for me as a kid, he was Captain Kirk.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, I actually saw you say that Galaxy Quest is your favorite movie. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, it's not my favorite movie, but it's one of my favorite movies. And I think it's my favorite space movie just because it is such a great uh, send-up, but not a slapstick one. It takes a genre of film and the genre of all of the Comic Cons and all of the the uh, Trekkies and, and all of that, and it it blends them together in just as perfect a way as anybody could imagine. And the the casting in it, I'm not even sure how how intended the casting was, but it ended up being inspired uh, with uh, Sigourney Weaver just so brilliant as <laughs> in that role, just comically good, and uh, and of course Tim Allen as the washed-up person, but who actually uh, could rise to the occasion as needed. And and, uh, and each of the characters would really be interesting and, and sort of an amalgamated character of, of a lot of different uh, space movies, you know, fundamentally based on Star Trek. But I just found it delightful, and with so many memorable lines in it.
1: Yeah, I, I just love the moment in that movie where there's the kid who's basically the ultimate Star Trek fan. and uh and tim allen calls him on the phone and and the kid says look i I know it's not it's all made up it's just a tv show and tim allen says look listen to me it's
0: all real and the kid says i knew it i knew it i knew it that's exactly i knew it (laughs) which is hilarious and when uh when the character who played the chief engineer comes through you know some sort of liquid time warp drive things and says oh that was a hell of a thing i just thought that was priceless that you know, that that would be his reaction, the complete acceptance of something so wildly different and just like, oh, OK, fine. Mm. Next. <laughs> anyway, I, I just thought it was it was hilarious and uh, and and fun to watch. And I'd be happy to watch it again right now. <laughs> um,
1: you know, you mentioned the the movie, the recent movie Gravity with Sandra Bullock. And I assume you've seen this satirical article, Chris Hadfield ejected from movie theater for wildly heckling Gravity. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I found that was very funny. Actually, the guy who wrote it tweeted me the, the satire he wrote. He he thought it was happy that I liked it. What's funny was Australian media picked it up as truth, yeah. and uh, they actually started sending it through their normal media as if you know they didn't spend any effort corroborating sources or even thinking. <laughs> and and they uh, and they picked it up as truth. But uh, I thought it was uh, you know pretty funny and uh, and uh, good for the for the Beaverton to. Uh, to manage to confuse people that that they might think that was real. I thought it was cute. Uh
1: Yeah. So he, he quotes you as saying, Oh yeah, because that's what hypoxia is caused by rapid rapid cabin decompression. Looks like you idiots. Uh, (laughs) Is that the sort of thing you might, you might say?
0: Uh, No, no, I I, I don't spend a lot of my worry uh, critiquing Hollywood for their technical accuracy. I mean, I wouldn't want to sit next to a policeman during a, uh, you know, a presidential defense movie or, or, Air Force One or you know anything any doctor movie I like to be able to watch house or er and, and not be troubled by the uh, by the scientific inaccuracy of it its it's supposed to be entertainment you know um, Sandra Bullock described uh, gravity as an amusement park ride it 's supposed to be an amusement park ride for the people that watch it and that 's exactly what it is it's I, I love amusement park rides, and gravity's the same way it 's not supposed to be a uh, documentary or an astronaut training film. You know, it's just it's an amusement park ride and it's a good one. Mm.
1: No, I agree. It, it it is. But I mean you were you were on Conan uh recently and, and you were criticizing the lack of adult diapers in the movie.
0: <laughs> well you should see how we uh what it's actually like to do a spacewalk. It, it's uh imagine if you were going to the gym and you knew that you would be lifting weights steady without a break for seven hours. And you'd be doing it inside a rubber suit so that you couldn't go to the bathroom. And then at the very end of it, you're going to peel that rubber suit off your body. Imagine how it would look like you'd worn a wetsuit for the whole time you have been doing it. And imagine what you would look like. You'd look uh, soaking wet. Your hair would be matted down. You're, you'd be wearing a diaper. You'd, you know, you just look awful. No one wants to see Sandra come out wearing a, a full diaper and, and all filthy. in the, um, uh, liquid cooling, ventilation, garment it would have been nearly as as uh, as fun to watch. <laughs>
1: um,
0: did you see the, the movie The Europa Report? I have not, no. I, I've actually been pretty busy since I landed. And since I landed from space, I've seen a total of one movie, <laughs> and that was Gravity, and that's because I, I was invited to the uh, the premiere, the North American premiere at the Toronto Film Festival. But uh, no, I, I've been on the road every day uh, for months, and uh, so, no, I, I'm looking forward to seeing movies and relaxing. It just hasn't happened yet.
1: Okay. Yeah. The other one I was, I was, other recent movie I was curious about is Ender's Game, because they have this sort of zero gravity laser tag games they play. But Yeah, uh,
0: I heard about it. I, I was with, um, actually with, uh, uh, oh gosh, his name just gave me the, the lead from that in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, Harrison Ford. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was with Harrison Ford in one of the green rooms, actually, because uh, he was there because of Ender's Game. And so I knew it existed. But I, I haven't read it, nor have I seen it yet, um, but he was there talking about it. So, no, unfortunately, the closest I've come to seeing Ender's Game is to sit and talk with uh, with Harrison Ford for 20 minutes.
1: Uh-huh. I have always sort of wondered what it would be like to have a, a gunfight or martial arts or something in zero gravity. Do you have any uh, any thoughts on what that would be like, trying to fight someone in zero gravity?
0: Well, I remember once when when my kids first started scuba diving. And uh, they were about 14, 13, and 12, I think, or or so, 15, 13, and 12. And uh, we took, we they got all their scuba qualifications, and then we went scuba diving uh, in for their open water stuff down in the Bahamas. And I remember going down under the water, and my daughter, who was the youngest, was my buddy, and then I made the two boys buddies. And I watched them as sort of amused and concerned dad, of course, like young teenage boys did. They spent most of the time punching each other. <laughs> and, but I watched them underwater scuba diving, punching each other, thinking, well, that's fine because you can't <laughs> punch each other very hard when you're underwater. And, and it's kind of clumsy. And because of the drag of the water, it's pretty tiring. So um, I think it would be similarly problematic to try and have, or at least you'd have to invent whole new techniques to fight somebody where you didn't have gravity. you, you rely on leverage to get a good punch and and you rely on on position. And, and it would, if someone was really ahead of time and was good at a martial arts or or even a ballet dancer, or someone who's really lithe and graceful with the ways that they move, I think they would love weightlessness. They could really learn how to use it to be graceful and, and to three-dimensional advantage. But for, for most of us, all it would make you would be like my teenage sons punching each other off the reef of the Bahamas. Mm-hmm. All
1: right, so I just had a couple more movies I, I was going to mention. Maybe just I'll, I'll like throw these movies at you and you can just say whether you saw them and maybe like a one-sentence uh, reaction. Uh, sure. If, okay, Armageddon.
0: Sure, I saw Armageddon. Great soundtrack.
1: <laughs> all right. Red Planet.
0: I uh, didn't see a red planet.
1: Okay. Mission to Mars.
0: I saw a mission to Mars. Um, uh, <laughs> nice monsters.
1: <laughs> okay. Uh, the astronaut's wife. Uh, I did not see the astronaut's wife. All right. And contact.
0: Oh, I saw contact. Uh, yeah, Jodie Foster plays an intense, worried person better than just about anyone. And, uh, and she did a great job in that. And, and a, kind of a fun big machine to watch that they, uh, that they built. But beyond that, um, not much.
1: <laughs> all right. So uh, get into your book a little bit.
0: Um, not, you... not Close Encounters? I thought Close Encounters was a great book. Oh, all right. Well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed Close Encounters because they let you do, it's sort of like 2001, because they let you draw a lot of the conclusions yourself. You know, they didn't overdo it. They didn't, uh, they didn't turn it into a a Western right away. They, uh, you know, they, they let you think for a while and, and they, you know, it was sort of a, a Hitchcock or some, some sort of long brooding buildup to what was going to happen based on a lot of secondary or tertiary cues. I, I enjoyed that. I thought it was very cleverly put together and written and it's, it's a movie, even though it's of course dated now, but it's still iconic and, and I enjoyed that movie.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I was trying to limit it to just astronaut movies, but um, you know,
0: cowboys <laughs> yeah. oh, and aliens. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. If you want to mention uh, Close Encounters, that that's fine. I mean, actually, just on the subject of aliens, do you have any like overall thoughts about life elsewhere in the universe?
0: Um, personally, I, just because of the statistics, I'm convinced we're not alone in the universe. I mean, every the the bigger the telescopes we build, with with the Hubble telescope, uh, perhaps being the the best ever, um, the more stars we discover, the more galaxies we discover. And with our latest telescopes, the more planets we discover. We're actually, you know, we're we're basically proving that there's every single star has planets. And there's, as far as the human imagination can reach, there are essentially an unlimited number of planets. Unlimited. And to think that ours is the only planet that developed life in an unlimited universe of time and space and opportunity to me it's just a, uh, a self-centered arrogance you know that we're so special so so I think there's probably life somewhere else uh, to think that uh, some intelligent derivation of that life has traveled all the way across the universe and come to the earth and is sneaking around finding us fascinating and and uh, and you know only revealing themselves to people that believe in it and and uh, that's always in the shape of what we expect it to be, a flying saucer or something or a cigar-shaped thing. To me, that's also just a self-important arrogance. I think the universe houses life besides our own, but I think um, it's going to be up to us to, to prove it and find it. And, and that's why we're looking around on Mars. You know, that's what this curiosity is, has shown us, great indicators of at least the potential for life on Mars when, when it discovered that there's so much water trapped in the topsoil of Mars. Uh, and so, you know, the opportunity is there. I think life probably does exist somewhere else. Maybe we can answer that conclusively just by digging down into the rock of Mars eventually and, and finding, um, you know, whether there's primitive life on Mars.
1: Well, and speaking of Mars, and speaking of Arthur C. Clarke, I saw that the Canadian Space Agency has something called the Arthur Clarke Mars Greenhouse. Uh, are you uh, involved with it or do you know anything about that?
0: Yeah, the um, uh, of course, uh, on a planet with low atmospheric pressure, but still enough sun power, uh, like Mars, if we're going to be able to grow anything on Mars, and when we go there, it'll obviously make sense to grow things there, not just to transport food all the way from Earth. Um We're going to have to learn how to grow things in a place like Mars. So it would obviously be in some sort of pressurized greenhouse that takes advantage of natural light as well as uh, man made light. And uh, the Canadian Space Agency um, tried to set up an early analog of that to understand how to operate one of those remotely, how to um, monitor the health of plants from thousands of miles away. And at the research station that uh, several of the agencies Co-developed up on Devon Island, up at the Hotman Crater, which is an ancient asteroid or meteor crater up in the Canadian Arctic, on the world's largest uninhabited island, on on uh, Devon Island, um, they uh, they built a, uh, a a research greenhouse up there, and it was really interesting. I, I was up there and did some training and, and work up there, and was inside that greenhouse. And uh, as is anything, you really want to choose names to honor. The pioneers and the visionaries and the uh, the inspirers of the past, and so I I thought that was a really good name for it. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, I mean, there's been a lot of talk recently about going to Mars, even going to Mars on one-way trips. Uh, I mean, what do you think are sort of the prospects uh, in our lifetime, say, for a a Mars, a manned Mars
0: mission? Uh, I don't think we will go to Mars until we invent different engines. Uh, It's a nice idea, and it's one that will inevitably happen but I just don't think we're technologically advanced enough to do it yet. Um, and with chemical rockets, which is the, really the best that we have right now, uh, that we can count on, it takes so long to get to Mars that it, it becomes self-defeating. Plus, how do you actually stop and land in an atmosphere that's too thin to support a parachute, but way too thick to let you just uh, come in fast and slow down uh, like you would on the moon? It's it's a very complex uh, matrix of problems to solve. And it, it, it's sort of like, to me, I, I look for a parallel example. It's like saying in 1912, hey, I want to fly to Australia. Come on, we got airplanes. Let's <laughs> go. Why don't we fly to Australia? And it's like, well, we will. But it's 1911. We can't yet. You know, We can barely fly across the English Channel. We can't fly to Australia. It's too far. Right now, If we were willing to kill people all the time, then then we could jump right into it and and start uh, learning the lessons at the cost of the loss of life. But uh, it's expensive and and nobody's willing to do it like, like we've explored a lot of the other places on the Earth. You know, our early explorers were expected to die regularly. It was just a normal part of exploration. But in space flight, we don't expect people to die regularly. And so it's, it's a little different. Um, so it's not a matter of us not going. Inevitably, of course, we'll go. Uh, we're only limited by technology, but I think it's premature right now. I think technology is still far too limited for us to be able to credibly mount an expedition to Mars, unless we absolutely had to. And the world isn't threatened nearly seriously enough to, uh, to put us into that boat.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, actually, uh, speaking of that, on Twitter, you posted, quote, the dinosaurs went extinct because they didn't have a space program. Did Larry Niven first say this?
0: Yeah, that's, that's. Uh, I, I've heard that quote uh, attributed to various different people. And I, I but I, I understand that Larry Niven first said it. I was just wondering if anybody had heard any different or if he got the idea from someone else. But of course, um, there's lots of geologic evidence to show how the Earth has been bombarded by asteroids in the past. And uh, uh, the Manicouagan Crater is one of the most visible stars on Earth. But there are a lot of others that are, the majority of them are buried by weathering and by, um, by continental drift. So the Earth hides its past well. But whereas Mars, because it doesn't have continental drift and very little weathering, or more importantly, the Moon, which has neither, the Moon is just, Uh, an agonized portrait of of horrific acne of uh, four and a half billion years of bombardment from the universe. So you can see uh, just how vulnerable we are to being hit by things that are coming through space. And as we build better detectors, we find more and more asteroids that are on the scale of at least serious death and destruction on Earth, if not complete civilization killers that exist out there and which have a given probability of hitting the world. And so uh, all of the people that are mounting efforts to at least the first stage is to detect, you know, we have to be able to try and detect one coming and and catalog the number that exists of asteroids that cross our orbit. And, uh, and I think we need as many of those sensors as possible as the first step. And then the next step of course, is what do you do about it? Whether you, try and deflect it, or whether you try and vaporize it or, or, or break it into pieces, or you just evacuate that part of the world. You know What is, what is the right answer? And who is the governing body that, uh, that is going to make that decision? So um, the reason that I chose that quote by Larry Niven is that it so eloquently states the bottom line of it, which is, the dinosaurs are here for a long time and their entire species, to a large degree, you know, apart from the small remnants, was obliterated by one day's events. One big rock coming from the universe, and the universe is full of rocks. And another one's going to hit the world again at some point. And it would behoove us as a species, if we really want to survive, to try and predict it and do something about it in advance. Because if we don't do anything, then uh, we would just go the way of the dinosaurs.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, do, you, do you read Larry Niven uh, fiction or other more recent science fiction authors?
0: No, I, I've read very little of Larry Niven. I, I don't read very much right now at all. I, as People don't know how busy astronauts <laughs> are. <laughs> they really don't. Uh, some people ask me, oh, what do you do in between space flights? Which just makes me laugh. It is such uh, a fanatically busy life of study and preparation and uh, taking care of each each other while we're all flying in space, it's, it's an all-engrossing and demanding job, and, and the majority of which you're on the road somewhere else. So, so no, I, I, uh, I would love to do more reading, but uh, the circumstances of my life, unfortunately, have kept me from reading all the things that I would like to. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, yeah, and, and speaking of how demanding it is being an astronaut, I, I read in your book that the internet on the International Space Station, you, you describe it as being dial-up slow, and it is. uh just the thought of of having slow internet for five months is just almost too horrible to contemplate so
0: <laughs> well we have um we have email on board but you but it's it's slow enough that we just do email syncs we synchronize our email a certain number of times per day and maybe once a day on the weekend so it's like a lot of the world where you have very limited capability and we upgraded the um the connectivity while I was on the station we increased it by about a hundredfold in speed which gave us great ability to uplink and downlink videos so that I could make all of those educational videos and fun videos and get them down to the ground for people to release uh but it got to almost the point where you could stream up to the space station but not quite so it's improving mhm
1: yeah you know I can barely get Comcast to fix my internet and I don't know if I've mentioned this but I live on earth so you wouldn't think that might be that much of a problem.
0: Yeah, the way that we linked up our our internet on board is pretty complex, uh, but it eventually got linked down through Houston. Eventually, that long train of of connections through relay satellites out in the uh, in the geostationary orbit and the big ground arrays that that bring the information back, they all eventually went and connected to a a desktop that was sitting at the Johnson Space Center that uh, then tied us into the internet, and that one still required on uh, Comcast to keep us connected. <laughs>
1: um, so, I mean, you've gotten a lot of attention for, you know, speaking of, uh, of the Internet, you got, you've gotten a lot of attention for your YouTube videos, particularly your uh, performance of David Bowie's song Space Oddity. Uh, what have been some of the biggest uh, reactions to that that you've gotten?
0: Well, the biggest reaction is Bowie himself, who said it was the, uh, the best cover of that song ever done, which <laughs> is pretty, uh, pretty high praise from the art- artist himself. I mean, it's been seen if you just go to the where my son made that video. I mean, I recorded the music, and the singing, and then a musician named M. Greiner, a superb recording artist named M. Greiner. She did the piano part and and Joe Corcoran did the rest of the instrumentals. Um, but it was really my son. He edited the video. He put it all together. It was all his idea. Um, and he posted it to the Internet. And that one place where he posted it, where my son Evan posted it, almost 20 million people have seen it but it's been reposted many other places and it's been rebroadcast on regular media such that hundreds of millions of people around the world have seen that video. And I hear echoes of it everywhere all the time. It's kind of funny for people to say, Hey, I saw your video. Like in my life, I made one video. Uh, But that's the level of ubiquitous uh, impact that it had. And what's interesting about it, going back to sort of the central core of the conversation is why is it an interesting video, and I think it's because much like um, science fiction in the late '60s with Star Trek and, and 2001, they were overlaid at the same time by the reality of the race to the moon. And I think that video, which took an iconic um, fantasy science fiction kind of view of space travel, and and very brilliantly told a little story and and created a sense of emotion. Um, Somehow, that became real when I had a chance to sing it and record it on board the space station. It interweaves um, science fiction and science fact. And, And all sorts of people have sent me pictures of of, uh, you know, their kids or someone just hypnotically watching that over and over again and trying to square inside their head. Why? How could this be? And the norm, normality of it and the juxtaposition on that. And I think the reason that hundreds of millions of people have seen it is just that, that it links science fiction and fantasy with reality, that we have built something. The world has built a place. Where uh, science fiction and fantasy become real, and that's what the space station is. And uh, and I was delighted that my son talked me into it because the impact and the uh, and the thought provocation that's gone along with the impact have been so huge.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so so your book, an astronaut's guide to life on Earth, contains a lot of valuable life lessons that you've learned as an astronaut uh, and a pilot that can be applied to everyday life. And I was wondering, like, is one of those lessons that you should always check your a cockpit for dangerous animals before you take off
0: <laughs> i do now yeah yeah that was a real surprise the day i found a live snake in the cockpit with me while flying an airplane that was not the type of thing uh, and what's funny is uh, a common expression amongst fighter pilots when you're when you're super busy in the cockpit because most fighter airplanes have one seat and you have to do everything by yourself and so it can get extremely busy especially when you're when you're doing a dogfight or something, and the common expression we would use was, "I was killing snakes and putting out fires," and so to actually have to deal with a live snake in the cockpit, it was uh, it was a little bit like Raiders of the Lost Ark or something. <laughs> like flying an airplane and having to deal with a writhing, very unhappy snake in in the cockpit with me was uh, was a first and hopefully a last in my experience.
1: Mm. And that snake found it found himself. Uh... Uh, ejected from the uh from the
0: airplane. Yeah, well what what would you do? <laughs> uh Russ Wilson, the a uh, firefighter friend of mine that I was with, and I we both decided let's get this little window open and then uh send the snake on his final flight and then we'll we'll go back to the business of flying this airplane. And we were up high, we're about ten thousand feet, so that snake fell a couple miles and hopefully landed somewhere innocently and not in the front seat of somebody's convertible (laughs) driving down the highway or something.
1: I don't know if you've ever read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but there's a part where a a missile gets turned into a whale. And so this whale finds Uh, itself in midair falling and sort of, I
0: I never, I haven't read that book. No, I'm sorry.
1: No. Sort of reminded me of that.
0: (laughs) It sounds similar, but the, uh, I'm sure that snake was trying to figure out, but actually uh, oddly enough, I've read about it since. And, because birds of prey pick up snakes and then don't like carrying it around, often snakes get dropped from great heights. And there's all sorts of stories of <laughs> snakes suddenly falling on people's heads or landing on houses and things. And it's because um, it's not just because of people flying uh, <laughs> beach, beach craft around the, the country and chucking it out the window. But I think birds of prey similarly get surprised sometimes when they pick up a snake and then and then tire of carrying it around. Uh-huh.
1: Uh, another thing in the book that really struck me was you, you talk about having a psych evaluation uh, before you can go into space. And one of the questions is uh, Have you ever thought about killing your mother? I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it just made me yeah. wonder how useful are those psych like, evaluations? Like,
0: do they well, actually I, catch I, anyone? Well, if you were being evaluated to be an astronaut um, and you really wanted to be one, then how would you approach a test like that? If you knew that you were going to do a psychiatric evaluation, what would you do? Would you just take it and hope for the best? Well, I I thought, okay, I'm going to do a psych exam. Well, I'm going to call a psychiatrist friend of mine and say, hey, how do you do well on these exams? What, what are they going to ask for? What are they looking for? You know, is there a pass fail or is there a grade or, you know, what are they really looking for? And what she said was, no, it's, pretty much a uh, it is just to identify real major psychological aberrations people with some really strong um psychological problems it's not going to uh be much of a discriminator at all if you're not uh, seriously troubled psychologically if you're not schizophrenic or manic or something um then you're going to be fine so i when i was doing it i i more felt like the answers i were writing weren't important but i i all i felt that there must be a television camera watching me fill out these questions and just looking for my incredulous reaction. like Because it was 500 questions, I think, or some enormous battery of questions, and, and a lot of them were nonsensical. And, and you try and write down what you think is the right answer. Like uh, when I was a kid, I always answered the doorbell first, yes or no. And I'm going, <laughs> number one, I don't remember. There were five of us in the household. I don't think we even had a doorbell because it was a farmhouse. And also, what would be the right answer? Should I have answered the doorbell first? Should I not? I don't even know. So, so I just treated the whole thing as sort of a big uh, a big exercise. And I don't think they have eliminated very many applicants. By the time you get to the stage where they're giving you the psychiatric test, um, there's not too many people that could have gotten all of the other qualifications that, that would still be uh, very psychologically aberrant.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so you, you recently wrote an article on Wired called "We Should Treat Earth as Kindly as We Treat Spacecraft." Could you just talk about how that came about?
0: Yeah, I was approached by uh, Wired magazine to write the um, sort of the lead-in article or a conversation question article, and uh, for the issue, the December issue, that was guest edited by Bill Gates, and uh, and they basically said you can write it about whatever you want, and so I, I thought about some of the issues that had. Puzzled or intrigued or challenged me while I was in orbit, because uh, the beauty of my third space flight was the amount of time that I had, I had uh, the better part of half a year off of the planet to look at it and think about it and puzzle over some of the problems and potential solutions, and and so I, I sort of took myself uh, when I was writing that article, I just took myself through that same thought process. Of how looking at the world that way starts to make you think. And then it starts to help you boil down to the key problems, to the real things that are facing us and how we might get together and solve them. And, and, and a viewpoint that isn't driven just by local concerns, but one that's given by global concerns. And, uh, and to me, it's all about power generation and, and the pollution that it causes because none of our power generation, um, solutions, whether it's fossil fuels or or whether it's uh, whatever, nuclear power or even wind power. I mean, that, that has its own drawbacks also, even though it's more renewable, um, how we are going to generate power uh, so that it decreases the scarcity of resources and decreases the deleterious effects on the atmosphere. And so I tried to go through that long process. And if you look at a spaceship, it's just a microcosm of the Earth, or, or the Earth is just an exaggeration of a spaceship. You have crew, you have limited resources, you have a habitable zone, you have an, a system that maintains that habitable zone, and you are still subject to external forces that can cause havoc at any time. And, uh, and so it, it, uh, I was really pleased with how the article came out. It, it helped me go through the whole thought process. And all sorts of people commented that, uh, that they really enjoyed um, the thoughts that went into that article. Even Bill Gates himself uh, wrote a, an unbidden note that he, he found it very thought provoking and insightful. So, so I was really pleased to have a chance to, uh, to write that.
1: Uh, and I saw that you just uh, took a new position as an adjunct professor at the University of Waterloo.
0: Yeah, I'm an adjunct professor. Uh, I went to the University of Waterloo for postgraduate work in mechanical engineering. It's a great school. It's one of the top um, academic universities, you know, technical, uh, engineering, cutting-edge kind of uh, challenging universities, one of the hardest in the country to get into uh, in all of Canada. And a lot of great ideas come out of there. And of course, the Perimeter Institute with um, with all of the research, the physics research that's going on is right there in that same town. And And ComDev, one of the leading aerospace companies in in the country, is right there, too. So it's a really fertile area. And uh, when they asked me to come and be an adjunct professor, and I had to go look up what adjunct meant. (laughs) It it means, you know, part-time or or guest or whatever time allows. And uh, things are pretty busy right now. Um, So I think primarily my role will be largely as a guest lecturer or occasional lecturer. But I think it's an investment both on my part and on the university's part for years to come. I'm really looking forward to building my relationship and my uh, my time at the school there because of all the people that have taught me over the last uh, 50 years all these different things and the levels of experience and technical skill that I've gained as a result and, um, and hopefully, therefore, some of the useful lessons and teaching opportunities that will help the students going through there So that they not only come out of university with uh, good academic knowledge, but with as much um, practical insight and uh, and potentially the ability to avoid making the same mistakes that I did as possible. So I'm really looking forward to it. Uh,
1: So, I mean, what else is keeping you busy these days? I guess you're you're probably speaking and are you writing anything else or what what else are you up to?
0: Uh, well, the book tour, is it's a New York Times bestseller, and it's the number one selling book in Canada, and it's selling extremely well in the UK and Ireland and Australia. And it's been translated or being translated, I think, into 10 different languages in other countries. So the book tour is keeping me extremely busy, which is great. I'm really pleased that people are enjoying the book. Um, and so I've been um, uh, traveling a lot, just a book tour and meeting folks and signing books there is, as you say, uh, lots of public speaking. A great demand for for me to come and speak, and so I uh, I do that on a regular basis. Um, and I'm consulting a little bit to the aerospace industry as well, which is um, which I think is a good thing to develop and, and try and not just talk to academia, but also talk to government and industry about the practicalities of what I've learned over the last quarter century. Um, and eventually, hopefully, I'll take a day off. <laughs> should be welcome as well, uh, but it, it's busy. And I, I was with the government thirty-five years, and I just retired. So the transition is important. As in, I'm, I was outside of Canada for twenty-six years in the U.S. and Russia, so getting settled back um, and just trying to pick my battles now and decide where I want to apply my efforts full-time. But uh, I'm not in a big hurry to commit to anything quite yet. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, we appreciate that you're busy and we re- really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today, Chris.
0: Thanks. It was really lovely to have a chance to talk with you as well. And uh, thanks for having done all the research. You you did vast research and <laughs> getting ready to talk to me here and uh, and it made it a lot, lot more interesting for me as well. So thanks very much. It was a real pleasure to talk with you.
1: <laughs> all right. Thank you very much.
0: Take care. All right. You too. Bye-bye.
1: Bye. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Chris Hadfield for joining us on the show. And now it's time for our panel.
3: Hi, this is Matt. And welcome to a very special episode 100 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is David Barr Kirtley. Dave is the co-host of a science fiction podcast, something called Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, on Wired.com. His short fiction has appeared in magazines such as Realms of Fantasy, Weird Tales, and Lightspeed on podcasts such as Escape Pod and Pseudopod, and in books such as The Living Dead, New Cthulhu, The Way of the Wizard, The Dragon It*, and Fantasy Best of the Year. So, Dave, welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be here. And also joining us is John Joseph Adams, esteemed short fiction editor and the co-host emeritus of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Some of his anthologies include Federations, The Way of the Wizard, The Mad Scientist's Guide to World Domination, and my personal favorite, the Living Dead (laughs) 2. He is the editor and publisher of the science fiction and fantasy magazine Lightspeed and the horror magazine Nightmare. So, John, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. (laughs) In my duties as guest host, I suppose I should introduce myself as well. I'm Matt London, the author of The Eighth Continent, a series of science fiction novels for children about a brother and sister who must combat pollution, plastic, and paperwork to save the world, coming from Razorbill Books next year. I'm also the creator of Space Pirates in Space, an animated web series about the continuing adventures of a band of bumbling brigands, which you can check out right now at spacepiratesinspace.com. But my most impressive credential is that this is my 10th appearance on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. So, guys, I suppose that in um, in true James Lipton style, we should begin at the beginning. Mm. Uh, where Where were you born, and when did you first realize you were a geek? Dave?
1: Uh, Okay. So I was born in Philadelphia uh, while my dad was a professor at UPenn. But shortly after I was born, my parents moved to Westchester. I grew up in a town called Katona. Uh, My parents were both research scientists at the IBM Thomas J. Watson lab in Yorktown Heights. And my parents are both big science fiction fans. And most of the books they read to me growing up were fantasy and science fiction books. So I identified as a geek from uh, as early as I can remember.
3: What were some of those books that they read to you?
1: Uh, Some of the earliest books they read to me were The Hobbit, I remember, and um, Have Spacesuit Will Travel and Red Planet by Robert Heinlein.
3: And so, because those were just so removed from what you were familiar with from a storytelling point of view, they stood out to you as being unique or special in some way.
1: Uh, well, I mean, actually, I mean, sort of the cultural milieu I grew up in was really suffused with the fantastic. I mean, all the cartoons I watched were. Transformers and Thundercats and stuff like that, and Voltron. Um, so uh, everything I gravitated toward, both in books and television and, uh, and movies, you know, movies I watched were like Ghostbusters and Back to the Future, or some of my earliest memories of movies. So really, just everything I was watching was, uh, and that I was drawn to, was always the fantasy and science fiction stuff. Yeah. Did
3: you find that when you were a kid, um, those sorts of um, those sorts of entertainment were sort of commonly accepted as being cool or popular back when you were younger? Because, like, the things that you mentioned, right? Like Transformers, Ghostbusters, um, it, it The Hobbit, right? These are huge things that are still, you know, famous and popular today, kind of commonly accepted as being cool or mainstream. But back then, did you feel like there was any sort of, like, difference between the kinds of stuff that you were interested in, the kind of stuff that either... Um, friends at school or people you knew were, were interested in?
1: Uh, yeah, maybe not when I was really young. I was not aware of that. But certainly as I got a little bit older, I, I definitely did get autocrat of crap from people sometime. I mean, I mean, everyone was into stuff like Transformers, etc. Or at least most of the kids I knew were. But if you were too into stuff like that, it was definitely a mark against you socially. Uh, in particular, since my parents both worked for a computer company, we were one of the only families uh, that had a personal computer when I was growing up. And people would, would make fun of you for having a computer. You know, it was like, uh, you know, that was just too nerdy. Uh, it was it made you a target uh, for mockery. And it's, it's funny just how things have developed that you now you can't, it's almost, you almost can't imagine anyone not owning a personal computer. But things definitely were different uh, when I was growing up.
3: Yeah. Um, okay, I have to ask you because you mentioned them both. Transformers or Voltron? You can only pick one. I'm I'm more fond of transformers. Oh my god, blasphemy! I can't. (laughs) I can't even. I can't can't even. Okay. Um, And John, what about you? What was your early geekhood like? Wow, starting with
2: where we're born—that's some David Copperfield shit, right there. That's right, (laughs) and
3: (laughs) yes, indeed,
2: we'll go all the way through it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So I was born in uh, Perth Amboy, New Jersey, which is uh, known mainly for being the town right across the outer bridge from Staten Island. Um, and also apparently the first capital of the state, according to my grandfather. He had Alzheimer's, uh, and so he used to tell me that all the time because he would forget that he told me that. Um, but, uh, so I, I, I will never forget as a result. Anyway, um, you know, yeah, I mean, sort of like Dave, I mean, when I was a kid, uh, basically looking back on it, almost everything that I was a fan of back then was science fiction or fantasy in some way. Um, I didn't actually really properly identify as a science fiction fan until I was much older. I started working at a Walden books and uh and I was sort of working my way around uh the science fiction section. Like I, I discovered Michael Crichton and I was reading a bunch of medical thrillers like Robin Cook and stuff like that. So I was reading all this stuff that was really infused with a lot of science, but it wasn't categorized as science fiction, even though Michael Crichton's obviously science fiction. Um when I was looking around for other things to to read that were like that, um my brother in law at the time, um, you know, He's no longer my brother-in-law because my sister got divorced. But, you know, he he was sort of my guidepost because he had, like, read tons of science fiction. And so um, he recommended to me that I read uh, Mars by Ben Bova because it's basically a medical thriller in space. Uh, And so that was a really good gateway for me. And then um, so I I read that and I I read a bunch of other. I started reading a bunch of other science fiction. I mean, I basically uh, came up with Ben Bova because he was the first uh, science fiction author I discovered. You, You know, he had all these collections and um uh, with his short stories in it, and so he would talk in the in the editorial notes about uh about editing analog or or uh various other short story magazines and whatnot and uh so yeah, I mean that was sort of how i even even heard of a sign uh, of a short story magazine
3: so it seems like by the time you guys were going off to college, you both were convinced you wanted to host a podcast and keep <laughs> interviewing the most famous personas in the industry right <laughs> or
1: uh, well no i mean <laughs> By the time we went off to college, there were no podcasts, right? I right, mean, exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, I first encountered podcasts, actually, because I had a story. Uh, this, uh, somebody I went to, uh, I did Orson Scott Card's um, Writer's Boot Camp in about 2004 or so. And one of the guys I met there tried to start up an early online magazine. Uh, it was called Mech Muse. And it didn't end up working out, but he, he used two of my stories in that. and or, I mean, you know, he only, they only put out two issues. Uh, But that sort of introduced me to iTunes and and podcasts and stuff. And um, and then in subsequent years, I I really got addicted to podcasts. And I I mean, I, I was just I went through a period where I was just listening to hours and hours a day of podcasts. i had listened to probably dozens, I don't know, maybe over 100. I don't know.
3: So, Dave, I'm curious, when did you decide that you wanted to really pursue science fiction as a career? Was it after high school and college or even later than that?
1: Uh, well, I mean, I was writing, I've been writing fiction all my life, and I've been publishing stuff since I was 16. And I always sort of thought I would, I, I always knew I would do writing or some sort of related creative field. Uh, but I always sort of imagined, you know, when, when you're a kid, you imagine that, oh, I'll be like an astronaut and a writer <laughs> and a cowboy, like, yeah. whatever. Um, so <laughs> I thought I would do all sorts of things at once. And, uh, and that writing would be kind of a sideline. Um, and so in college, I majored in political science. I thought I might d- do some sort of constitutional law or be a human rights attorney or something like that. And I studied creative writing as well. And I had, in, you know, I uh, when I was a freshman in college, I won the, it was it was then called the Asimov Award. It's now called the Dell Magazines Award for uh, sort of best short story written by an undergraduate college student. And that was really, that really got me more into thinking that I might be able to do this in some sort of professional capacity and when i was a junior in college i attended the clarion writers workshop and made a lot of really good friends there and sort of got more plugged into the scene as a result of the asimov award i had gone to my first convention um and so so i think it was it was meeting other people my age who wanted to be science fiction writers and go into conventions that really got me thinking about it more seriously as a profession
3: So I actually also attended Clarion about 10 years after Dave did. I I hope that doesn't date you too much. (laughs) But um, when I was there, I actually went through the archives and uncovered some of your old stories. Do you remember anything that you wrote while you were there?
1: Oh, yeah, sure. Well, I wrote The Blackbird there and The Second Rat and Beauty, all of which were published subsequently. Hmm. Uh, A couple other stories. uh, You know, John actually published Beauty and reprinted The Blackbird. The ones that weren't published, let's see, I had... Uh, I had one that wasn't very good called Vicky, and I had another one that w- wasn't very good called Black Goo, uh, and another one that wasn't very good called Turk Commander. Um,
3: did Did you write your uh, the uh, Jefferson story while you were there?
1: No, the, but that was one of my application stories.
3: Oh yeah, that was so. That was actually the one that I that I uh, that I read while I was there. Okay. Um, what do you think that What effect do you think that writing workshops like Clarion? Well, talk about what Clarion is, and then tell me what you think. What impact do you think that writing workshops like Clarion have on young science fiction writers or older science fiction writers? Who would?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, Clarion is a sort of famous science fiction writing workshop. It's a six-week summer program, and every week a different professional author comes in and, and works with all the students for that week. There are about twenty students typically admitted, and it's on the base. You know, you have to submit. When I did it, it was two stories you had to submit to get in, uh, and you work on short story. You're supposed to write one short short story a week or so while you're there um and i mean i think it's a fantastic experience i would encourage anyone who has the time and resources to do it uh i mean sort of the knock against writing workshops in general is that you can't teach writing or that uh it makes everyone write the same uh i didn't find that to be the case at all um i think there are certainly things about writing that you can teach Uh, i learned a lot about uh point of view and structure and and You've just basic grammar uh, at writing workshops I attended. And uh, I've always had, I think, a very strong voice. And uh, it's hard for me to imagine any, anything really uh, fundamentally changing my voice, let alone something that happens in six weeks. Uh, so I'm I'm totally in favor of writing workshops.
2: Well, obviously, you attended like every one there is.
1: Yeah, I guess I should say, mm-hmm. in addition to Clarion, I attended a whole bunch. Uh, I liked Clarion so much, I also attended Odyssey, which is a similar six-week summer workshop I attended. I mentioned Orson Scott Card's Writer's Boot Camp. I attended one called Viable Paradise. I attended James Gunn's uh, writing workshop at the Center for the Study of Science Fiction at uh, the University of Kansas, um, and maybe even some other ones I'm not <laughs> I'm forgetting about at the moment. But yeah, there were a bunch of them.
2: And then you got your MFA.
1: We'll yeah, and I also workshops. yeah, and then I also did an MFA at the University of Southern California, where I studied with uh, Irvin Kershner, who directed *Empire Strikes Back*, and I took a class with TC Boyle, who's one of my favorite short story writers. So, yeah, I was sort of a workshop workshop junkie for quite a number of years.
3: <laughs> you guys are jumping all over my beautifully constructed <laughs> questions. <laughs> like we've just skipped through half of it now. Thanks. Sorry, no, but no, it's great actually. So I want well, so the the trajectory I was headed on is that so. All of this training that you got as a writer, both through independent workshops and the master's program, um, all of the incredible teachers that you worked with, you then now um, are a writing workshop teacher. So tell us about tell us about that experience.
1: Uh, yeah, for a boy, I think 10 years now, I've taught or I've been on the staff at the Alpha Young Writers Workshop, which happens it's a, about a week and a half every summer. And uh, in order to apply, you need to be between the ages of, I think, 14 and 19. Um, and actually I've been doing it long enough now that many of the students from five or six or seven years ago are now, uh, you know, starting to get published and establish themselves. And, uh, you know, it's, it's actually, uh, yeah, pretty neat because now, uh, you know, these, they were students and now they're kind of colleagues.
3: Yeah. So John, um, I'm going to come back to you for a bit. What was your uh what was your sort of professional uh science fiction journey like after you finished college?
2: Well, uh it was in college and I was taking creative writing classes that I really first uh even entertained the idea of of working in editing. Um, you know, because I I was workshopping stories and I felt like I had a good um a good sense of what of, of how to help writers make their stories better. And, and my teachers seem to think so. And the writers seem to think so. So I was like, Oh, maybe that's something I could pursue because I, you know, I, at the time I wanted to be a writer and I figured that I would have to get a job, um, on the side, like everyone does. And, and I would write on the side and I would work the day, the day job. And I figured, well, if I have to do that, at least if I can get a day job that's interesting, um, and would also teach me about writing at the same time, that seems like a win-win, you know? So, um, I was in Florida. I was living in, in, in Orlando, um, or I went to school in Orlando. And, uh, so after college, I moved up to New Jersey where my grandparents lived, um, you know, back to the house where I actually lived when I was little. Um, and, uh, and so, um, I moved in there to help sort of help take care of them because they were elderly. And then, um, also I, I went around looking for jobs in publishing because it was in, uh, you know, it was close enough to New York to sort of consider that uh, a viable, uh, uh, proposition. And so, um, you know, I, I, I basically, I, I decided to apply it to short story magazines because I thought that would be sort of a, a better way to start. Cause I figured, oh, well, like it, it seems like more entry level than like a book publisher or something. Um, and so I, I sent my resume to FNSF and Asimov's and Analog. Um, and I never heard anything from Asimov's or Analog, but, um, but Gordon from FNSF, um, actually, you know, he emailed me right away and he said that, oh, well, um, I don't have any openings right now, but, uh, you should check back later in the year. So, you know, I, I, I pursued, uh, this was in 2001. And uh, January 2001, and so I, I sort of looked around for a job for a couple months. And then in May, he, uh, I followed up with him because I was like, hey, well, it's later in the year now, and I might as well try. And so um, right around then, his uh, assistant gave his notice. So um, I went in for an interview, and uh, I somehow convinced him
3: to give me the job. So tell me about uh, the first few months that you were working at FNSF, and, and what, what was it like uh, apprenticing under uh, Gordon Van Gelder?
2: Well, yeah, the first day or so, I remember it was very strange because I was like, I, I was basically just thrown into the slush pile. Um, and uh, Gordon basically sat down with the slush pile, which was an actual pile because they only take paper submissions. And this was back in 2001. So, I mean, nobody was really doing electronic submissions at the time. But, um, you know, he just sat down with a couple manuscripts and he's like, and he, and he was, uh, and so he, he like looked at one and he like read like the first two pages and like flipped to the back page. And, and they was like, okay, that's it. That's enough um and i was like oh okay wow that just blew my mind i was like oh so that's how slush is processed i I was like i I was imagining that you know that stories were read all the way through and um and and then the editor decided after that and i was like okay but then once i actually started doing it i was like okay well that would be madness because i mean there's no way (laughs) i mean there's no way anyone could possibly do that job for very long if you had to sit and read every single page of a manuscript but uh so, you know, I mean, I was, uh, it didn't take me long, though, to realize that I wanted to do that for a living. Um, you know, cause I, as soon as I started doing it, I, I loved it. And, um, you know, it was, you know, it, it was hard. Uh, it, it was hard to, um, to, to, you know, pass judgment on all those stories, knowing that I would be, you know, sort of breaking the hearts of these writers and whatnot. Um, but, uh, but I mean, you know, the work was very cool and it was very rewarding. Um, and ultimately it ended up satisfying the creative urge that I had to, to write. And so instead of, uh, well, it, it's sort of working there paralyzed my ability to write because I, I think that's something that happens a lot with editors, um, especially slush readers. But, um, but it was fine because I, I was perfectly happy to devote all my energies, all my creative energies to editing instead.
3: So, like, how specifically did working at fantasy and science fiction, like, inform your style as an editor?
2: I mean, I think working at FNSF actually really helped me develop the appreciation for the more literary type stuff. Cause, I mean, FNSF was sort of founded with that, um, idea. Um, actually, I mean, it's not as clear now because sort of all of the short story, uh, magazines are more or less publishing stuff that's, uh, you know, sort of more on the literary side than, than you would have found, like, back in the, the thirties or forties or something. Um, you know, FNSF was launched in 1949 and it was kind of a reaction to the sort of more to more plot, uh, focus stories that were running in, uh, analog, which I think at the time was still called astounding. Um, and, and the other magazines like amazing stories and, and whatnot. And so FNSF was really geared towards the literary side of things um and uh so and so that's continued to be an important factor in fnsf and i think um i don't know that i really had as much of an appreciation for that type of uh story before that um you know i mean i i, I came up reading ben bova who's you know very much an analog type writer and so um you know there's not much uh poetry in his in his writing it's it's very workmanlike and it's uh very plot focused and and i mean that's fine it's just that it's uh, it's a different type of writing Um, And so that's probably what I I learned most from my time at
3: FNSF. So when did you when did you first make the decision to edit your own anthology? And how did you go about um, like selecting the authors for it and getting it published?
2: Uh, Well, it all started with post-apocalyptic fiction. Um, And, you know, like after after 9-11, I saw this resurgence of post-apocalyptic fiction happening in the slush pile. And I think the slush pile is generally a place where you can detect trends before the public at, uh, at large is actually aware of them. Um, but, uh, in that case, I, I I noticed that happening and there was this magazine called three SF. Um, it was a short lived British magazine and they had this column called reader's guide. And it was sort of, um, it was sort of a little, uh, it was sort of an introduction to a subgenre, and a, and it had a recommended reading list. And so I, um, I pitched them the idea of doing one on post-apocalyptic fiction. And so I did. And so I sold that to them and, and, and so I had to do all this research for it. And when I was doing all that research, I mean, I already knew a lot about it, but I didn't know enough to do this article. And so. Um, after I did all this research, I, I really realized that, well, there's hardly any post-apocalyptic science fiction anthologies. Um, and I was like, well, why is that? How can that be? I mean, it's such a popular genre, or at least it was back in the day. Um, you know, it hadn't been very popular, um, in the nineties, sort of after the Cold War, it sort of, uh, sort of quieted down. Like nobody was really interested in that kind of thing. Um, but then, like I was saying, after 9-11, it sort of, there was this resurgence. And, um, so I decided I was going to put together a post-apocalyptic anthology. And I knew that, um, it was very unlikely I'd ever get to take over FNSF, so if I was going to ever sit in the big chair, as it were, you know, I'd have to try to do an anthology or something, or I'd have to leave and do something else. Um, So I, I put together a proposal for an original anthology of, of post-apocalyptic fiction that didn't sell, but then a couple of years later... um Uh, Bison Books reissued Beyond Armageddon, which is one of the only post-apocalyptic anthologies that existed back then, and it was a reprint anthology, and so I basically put together the proposal for Wastelands, which became my first anthology, um, as a spiritual successor to Beyond Armageddon. Um, That's how I ended up selling my first anthology. It was sort of this weird confluence of events.
3: So, Dave, at at what point in this whole process did you and John first meet?
1: Uh, okay, so John and I met at uh, – there's an organization called the Science Fiction Writers of America, and they have a annual reception, and we met at that. It's kind of a funny story how I ended up going to that in the first place. I was at one of these I, – I had just been going to conventions, and i kind of been hanging out in New York and going to the KGB readings and, and getting to know people there. And I was at a convention, and I met an established author, and he learned that I lived in Westchester, and he said, oh, well, I live in Westchester, too. Uh, you, you know, you should sign up for my mailing list, and so, so I did. Oh. And then he through his mailing list, I got an invite to a reading that he was doing at a bookstore in Westchester. And I thought, oh, you know, I, I normally I have to take the train an hour to get into New York to meet anyone in the literary world. And here this here's this guy who lives right in my neighborhood, and I'll, I'll meet all sorts of other authors and fans in Westchester I never even knew existed. So I went to this bookstore, and there were about eight people in the audience. And so the this author read, and then you know, he says, Are there any questions? And the, the, the other people in the audience, it's kind of two families, I guess. And the, the father of the first family raises his hand and he says, like, how do you get published? Hmm. And, and the author says, well, are you interested in publishing science fiction specifically or just general fiction? Or and the guy says, no, I'm a photographer and I take pictures of cityscapes and I want to know how to publish a book of photographs of cityscapes. And this author said, Well, I, I wouldn't really know anything about that. <laughs> and the guy said, Okay, thanks. And he and his family got up and walked out. Right? <laughs> oh,
2: God. So, so it's now just it's four people in the audience. Yeah, so
1: it's me and this other family. <laughs> and the other guy raises, the father of the next second family raises his hand and he says, My question is sort of along the same lines as the last question. <laughs> and so that guy leaves disappointed with us. You know, so that guy takes his whole family and they leave disappointed as well. And so, so then it, like, it turns out I'm the only person really who's come to see this author. Uh, so I didn't get to meet anyone. You know, there were no fans uh, or other writers in Westchester, which you know, it's not surprising because Westchester is a really boring place. Uh, But it didn't, it ended up not being a total loss because this author said to me, "Uh, are you going to the CIFL reception on Friday, whatever? And I had sort of heard about it. I'd never been before and I really didn't have any particular plans to go. And he says, no, you have to go. It's the most important thing you can possibly do for your career. If you wake up that morning with like a broken leg and a the flu and all this other stuff you still have to go it's that important and so actually i did wake up um that morning not feeling so good um and so i wasn't really planning to go but i I sort of remembered he had been so emphatic about it so i decided to drag myself out to it and uh, it used to be at the society of illustrators it was this really nice building and so i was there and i you know i had been submitting stories ever since i was uh 14 or so to gordon van Gelder. Uh, who john mentioned his boss at the magazine of fantasy and science fiction and i had introduced myself to him at Readercon, um you know a few months earlier and so i saw him he was one of the few people there who i, I recognized so I, I went up to gordon and said hi gordon i don't know if you remember me i'm david Curtley." and he basically said oh hi that's great great to see you why don't you talk to my assistant
3: because <laughs> <laughs> you know you as quickly as possible <laughs> no right exactly exactly
1: uh, and John was his assistant, right? So, uh, so I started talking to John, and just instantly, uh, we really clicked. You know, we, uh, you know, we just got along. Uh, you know, we were sort of on the wave, same wavelength. Um, but we didn't really get that much of a chance to talk uh, at, at the CIFL reception. I mean, we talked for, you know, I don't know, twenty minutes or something, as I remember. Um, and then shortly after that, uh, John Langen, who we actually just had on the show, organized a conference at SUNY New Newpaltz, and somehow I got invited to that, and I went to that. And I walked into some panel that was going on and I saw John sitting kind of in the back by himself and he just looked very lonely. And (laughs) I was also very lonely because I didn't really know anyone. So I went and sat and talked to him. And that was really the first time we really um, had extended conversations. And, um, and that's really, you know, sort of how we got to know each other. And, Hmm. uh,
3: John, what was your, what was your first impression of Dave? Uh,
2: well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's like, like he was saying, I mean, we just, we really hit it off and, uh, you know, um, I think I I want to say that when you introduced yourself to me, I re- I remembered that like you had a story in Weird Tales right around the same time or something, is mm-hmm. that right?
1: Uh yeah, I mean I had a story in Weird Tales in two thousand two, yeah. so yeah yeah probably that sounds right yeah. That-
2: right and like they spelled your name wrong right or like they they said Donald instead of David right.
1: Basically in, in everything I was published in in the early days, they they had a typo in my name or the title. I think yeah, it, no in um in in Weird Tales, yeah, they had me as Donald Barr currently, because right. there was a, a fairly well known author named Donald Barr who had just died. And oh, I guess he yeah. was just on their on their minds. Um It was funny, actually when that issue when that Weird Tales issue was reviewed, they had my name as in the review as David Carr Brimley.
3: <laughs> I actually thought it was
1: kind of badass. I might use that as a pseudonym for that. Um
3: So, John, after that, you went on to edit more anthologies while you were still at FNSF, including you mentioned Wastelands and then later The Living Dead. Did you did you always have an interest in the horror genre or was it your experience um, like on books like these that Mm -hmm. led to the creation of Nightmare uh, magazine later years later?
2: Oh, yeah, no, it was definitely it was definitely the experience um, working in the industry that led me to horror. I was sort of I'm sort of an accidental horror editor uh, because, you know, I. I don't know that I ever read a lot of it. I mean, some of the stuff I read was certainly somewhat horrific. I mean, I actually read some Dean Koontz when I was uh, sort of exploring stuff before I settled down into science fiction, and um, and you know, obviously he's a he's a horror author, and and I read some Stephen King, but not not too much. And um, it was re- F and is actually one of the reasons that I really grew to love horror because, despite their name, they actually do publish quite a lot of uh, horror. And uh, I mean, you could totally justify adding the third genre name to the magazine if it wouldn't make it even more unwieldy <laughs> than it already is. Um, but just in terms of, because of the amount of horror they do publish. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, that's where I learned to love horror, um, was at FNSF and then, um, and then doing the living dead and then, uh, by blood we live, um, you know, that sort of just helped me, you know, even grow to appreciate it even more. Um, you know, and, and I mean, wastelands is sort of horrific. I mean, post-apocalyptic fiction in general is just horrific, um, to, a, to a certain extent. Um, but, uh, but most people, like, I always think of it as a science fiction, uh, genre. And so like, um. Because that's the perspective I was approaching horror from, I sort of edited The Living Dead more like a a science fiction fantasy anthology, even though obviously zombies are considered typically a horror trope. Um, so, I mean, I think that's part of what helped make it um, so appealing to a wide audience because I think a lot of horror editors would have approached that with the idea that, Oh, zombies are extreme and gross. And like, they would go for all the most extreme um, cases like you would have found in, um, in, in some of the, like, some of the, the main texts were like the books of the dead um, that John skipped it in the eighties. And, 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 you know, some of the stories are really, really graphic and extreme. And, and I sort of, I mostly shied away from those. Um, which is funny if you've read The Living Dead and you've read Blossom and uh, Meat House <laughs> Man, but uh, you know there's there's ones that were much more extreme than that. So
3: well, well, I mean, I think one of the things that makes that book so popular is that it really does. While while it is a zombie anthology, you could say a horror anthology, the stories really do cover a multitude of genres, mm-hmm. um, styles, and tones. They're not all left for dead. Like, compare Dave's story to Kelly Link's story, right? Mm-hmm. Radically different, both excellent, but very different styles. And that, let alone I mean, they are different genres, you know.
2: Yeah. 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 And I mean, that, that accounts for a lot of the, the blowback that I got on the book. I mean, uh, it, there wasn't a ton. I mean, it was pretty universally loved. I mean, except on Amazon, you know, cause <laughs> uh, Amazon reviewers are like that. But, um, but a lot of, the, a lot of the negative reviews that I, that it got were because of that, because, you know, sort of in response to that, people were thinking of it more as like, you know, they knew what zombies were and I don't really understand zombies and why, why do we have all this foo-foo stuff in my zombie anthology, you know? Um, and, like, complaining about, like, the Kelly Link story or the jo- uh, the Joe Hill story, which, you know, I, I admit are kind of uh, tangentially related to zombies at best. You know, I mean, they're not <laughs> they're not really uh, core zombie stories. But I thought, like, hey, people who like zombie stories will like those stories. And if you like zombie stories and you don't like them, what's wrong with you? So,
3: yeah. So what's funny is that this is actually the point where I enter the story, um, hmm. because as a, a much younger man and uh, aspiring science fiction writer. I'd become well acquainted with John's, um, rejection slip of death. Right? <laughs> and so you were actually hosting a reading at, uh, Nursif or the, the New York Review of Science Fiction, mm-hmm. um, featuring stories from the living dead. And Dave was one of the readers. And, um, I remember you were both quite approachable and, and seemed happy to talk to, you know, a mumbling kid. Although in retrospect, I, the conversation would probably have been the extent of our relationship if it weren't for the fact that I'd brought a pretty girl to the reading with me. <laughs> the pretty girl in question, of course, lucky for me, would later become my wife. And you guys really took both of us under your wing, introducing us to the whole spec fic community in New York. Um, so my question then is, do you believe that there's something about New York, the city itself, that makes it like the city for science fiction?
1: Uh, Yeah, I would say so. I mean... I think it's just that New York is such a large city and a literary city and there's just, you know, fantasy and science fiction writers are sparse enough that it's very difficult to find a concentration of them geographically anywhere except New York. Uh, There's not, you know, I lived in LA, which obviously is a big city, but there's nothing that I ever found there comparable to the KGB readings or the NERSF readings, uh, the, the New York Review of Science Fiction readings. But I I mean the at that reading though, um, you know, where I read my story of the Skull Faced Boy and and Matt's uh, then girlfriend, now wife, uh, Jordan came up and started talking to me. It was a really um unusual experience because, you know, there's this joke that uh writing poetry and waiting for the public response is like dropping rose petals into the Grand Canyon and waiting to hear the boom when they hit the bottom. And that's kind of what writing short fiction most of the time is like as well. But The Living Dead was this huge best-selling book. It sold John can correct me if I'm wrong. I think over hundred thousand copies. It almost made it onto the New York Times extended list, and so many, or, you know, in order of magnitude more people read that story than than anything else I'd ever written. I got all sorts of fan mail and uh, fan art. Uh, like people wanted to make movies out of it. it. It was it was a crazy time.
3: Well, it's an aw- I mean it's an awesome story, and I I actually find that whenever I'm I don't want to spoil anything in the story, but I find that when I'm Whenever I'm writing a car crash, I have to force myself not to just rip you off because (laughs) I think it's maybe the best car crash scene I've ever read in anything. Um,
1: And it's like the first scene of the story, so you don't have to to read far to get to (laughs) it.
3: Yeah, you don't have to read far, right? So let's, let's, uh, let's get to the big question because I think the next big milestone was that in January 2010, an event transpired that had it not happened, none of us would be here right now. And that event, of course, was the airing of the first episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. So mm-hmm. what was the origin of the podcast?
1: Uh, well, I mean, we mentioned that The Living Dead was this big hit book, right? And we did, John and I, oh my God, we did all sorts of media appearances for it. Um, but one of the media appearances that we did was we appeared on Jim Froyan's Hour of the Wolf radio show on WBAI in New York. And uh, I think it's a two hour show or something, but we we got done and we we walked out of there and we're like, ah, we could talk for another six hours about this, <laughs> about this thing, you know, and I, f- I forget the exact order in which things happened, but John had been also around the same time had been talking about maybe making a, a geek documentary uh, that would sort of, that would have a respectful, they would take a look at science fiction writers and conventions and fans in a respectful way, which had never really been done and which we really wanted to see. And I mentioned that I was a, had become a hardcore podcast addict. And so all those ideas sort of um, melded together to the idea that we should do our own podcast and we could talk as much as we want and we could you know, take a respectful look at all these things that we're so passionate about. And John had been writing articles for Tor.com. And so he pitched the then uh, editor, uh, Pablo Defendini, who he'd been playing a lot of Left for Dead with. Uh, we actually talked about this a little bit back in the first episode, but, uh, you know, he pitched him on the idea of us doing a podcast and, you know, Pablo said, sure. And neither of us had any sort of experience with radio, theater, audio production, anything like that. So we were learning on the job from the first episode. Um, but yeah, that's how it got started.
3: And then uh, how did you uh, line up guests for the show and how did you divide up the tasks of like actually producing the podcast?
2: Uh well, uh for lining up the guests, I mean we would just we would talk to each other and figure out like what kind of guests we wanted to have and then uh at some point I um I kind of took the lead on that a little bit just in terms of trying to find out when authors have books coming out so that we can time guests so that, you know, it's it's the best uh publicity cycle for them. Um but uh you know, Dave took on the leadership role but very early on in terms of uh, you know, he edits all of the he does he edits all of the audio and um, he also comes up with uh, most of the interview questions. Like when we started off, it, it was like, uh, I would, uh, I, I would be like, okay, well, I'm going to come up with some interview questions and I'll send them to Dave. And then like, and then he had already done them all. So I was like, all right, well, okay, well, I'll just let him take the lead on that. And so, uh, typically he comes up with most of the interview questions. Um, and, uh, um, but yeah, and, and, and he, and he took on the the leader moderator role as well. So, I mean, he was really always the primary guy running the show. Um, and I was always much more of a producer, so it's not going to be that big of a transition. Like Dave was saying at the start here, that um, if I'm if I'm more in the producer role, it's not going to be that different, probably.
1: But John had just had the most amazing rolodex of contacts. in, oh, the, yeah. in the field because I mean he'd been in you know uh, I mean he'd been the assistant editor. I guess he'd edited a couple of anthologies at this point, but he'd also been uh, writing articles for a long time. And I think it done. Weren't you doing an interview a week for a while and stuff like that? No, and- a day.
2: Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was uh I was doing a, I was doing these interviews for Sci-Fi Wire which was uh like the new service of the Sci-Fi channel and basically every business day so 5 days a week I was interviewing an author every day um and it was like I mean the interviews were very simple they were based on a new book and I was just I was just using the same questions most of the time and then I would take their responses and turn them into a little article um but I was doing one of those almost every day and so because of that yeah I mean I I got to I got to uh, be in contact with almost everyone in the field at some point. I mean, cause I, I, I did that for a couple of years. So, I mean, there was, uh, you know, several, several hundred of them, if not more than a thousand, I don't I never counted them all up, but I mean, I did a ton of them.
3: It's really astounding to sort of just look at the episode list and think about how, even in just that first season, when you guys had no experience, like podcasting at all, the people that you had on the show, like Paolo Bacigalupi, Sherry Priest, uh, uh, Holly Black and Jonathan Colton, and uh, it, it's like really remarkable. And, and if you now, I mean, I can't think of anybody who hasn't been on the show. <laughs> I mean, may, you know, m- maybe you know, maybe uh, George Lucas. You should get George <laughs> Lucas on the show. Yeah, but other than that, like seriously, you've had everybody. Actually, um, Neil really Neil Gaiman,
2: Neil Neil Gaiman is our white whale. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, we, we missed out on him a couple times, and I was like, ah, Neil. You know,
3: but uh, <laughs> we'll we'll uh, we'll we'll turn it over to his fans and we'll say you guys have to pressure <laughs> him to go on the show. Yeah, it would be it would be excellent. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, and I, I guess Stephen King, too. I mean, we tried to get him on a couple of times as well, and, and we weren't and we haven't been able to. And and those are like two sort of notable emissions from from our list. Although, I mean, sure, there's plenty. I mean, we, we've only done 100 episodes and there's lots of people that are that are great that we never got around to just because the timing didn't work out for whatever reason. But, um, you know, hey. Still going, so there's still That's
3: time. That's right. Um, so, what would you say are some of the most memorable or your favorite guests that have been on the show?
1: Uh, I mean, the ones I was the absolutely most excited about to talk to were George R. R. Martin and I think Richard Dawkins. I'd have to look over the list to, to see, but uh, those were the ones. Certainly, I was the most nervous about, <laughs> nervous I, about going in, or seems, most intimidated by.
3: I, I really like those two choices, Dave, because they, they. I feel like those two kind of define your personality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like um these the, I mean certainly both Titans and so how did you go about preparing for those interviews? I mean, did you have to sort of like uh keep the red wedding WTF in chat? Was that sort of uh something like a compulsion that you had to cope with or what what how did you go about preparing to talk to uh George Martin?
1: Well, I mean, it's it's interesting I think because I I I'm really averse to gushing. And, you know, like when, when anyone does it, when interviewers do it. So I, I, I think I comport myself in a very professional uh manner all the time, even if it's someone I'm really excited to talk to. Uh some people have actually complained that I, I don't seem excited enough. You know, trust <laughs> me, I'm 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 squeeing on the inside, people, trust me. <laughs> um, but uh I mean the thing with George R. R. Martin was I, I had read and or listened to every interview he'd ever given in his life. So it's not like I had to do much prep for it um but uh he had actually indicated to us that he would like to talk about something other than song of ice and fire uh and so i really took that on as a challenge that we were going to do the whole interview and just not even mention song of ice and fire because <laughs> as, as we say in the episode it's episode 22 that I, I i could say anything you know anything that he's ever said about song of ice and fire i could tell you what it was so <laughs> we could save that for the for the second half of the show um but then as it developed you know he said oh well no you know Thanks for covering everything of mine. Now we can talk about Song of Ice and Fire if you want. So we took him up on that. Um, It's
2: like we proved ourselves to be true Fen, And uh, (laughs) thus we have the keys to the kingdom.
1: I still like to talk. I mean, I still <laughs> like to talk to him about a lot of his short stories that are I, I, I thought were just even too obscure to talk about, you know, in our one yeah. interview with him. But if we ever have him back on, there's a, I still have a lot of questions, <laughs> yeah. obscure questions I'd like to. ask. So you
3: you actually are I'm I'm going to out you as like a really big George R. R. Martin fan. <laughs> Sand Kings is your favorite Duh. short story, right? Yeah. And um, is it true that you actually transcribed all of King <laughs> of Thrones? Uh, that is true. Yeah. So oh. tell me. A, Tell me about that experience, because that's astounding to me. I remember, I forget where I read it, but somebody once gave the writing advice that if you want to learn how to write, transcribe a uh, novel by somebody important, and I can't remember who it is. (laughs) But it wasn't George R. Martin, Arnold, that sounds like a really good idea.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, what happened was, uh, I mentioned I was at the Odyssey Writing Workshop in 2001, and at that time, I really had some basic mechanical issues. Uh, regarding fiction that were eluding me in terms of point of view in particular in terms of writing what characters were thinking from a third person point of view and jean Cavelos, who uh is the the leader of that workshop really hammered me on stuff like that and um uh, and she she suggested this exercise where you should take a short story that you like and and type it retype the whole thing and just pay attention to everything about how it's written where the commas are where the periods are you know how, how long the sentences are and what their structure is etc and she also asked us to, to name our favorite short story. And I had listed Sand Kings by George R. R. Martin as my favorite short story. And there's a, this other guy at the workshop, Danny Linus, who was, had also listed that as his favorite short story. So, of course, we really hit it off. Hmm. And he was a big fan of Song of Ice and Fire and told me I had to read it. And I was really disillusioned with epic fantasy at that point, And I hadn't read any in, in several years. Um, but since he, you know, since you know, we were obviously, our, our tastes were uh, in accordance with each other, I, I went ahead and read it and just absolutely fell in love with that series. And it just seemed to me that, yeah, that if I, I I thought to myself, yeah, if transcribing a short story is good, doing a novel would be even better. And here's a novel that just seems to me to be firing on all cylinders. If I were to do this whole book, I felt at the time I would do everything I'd ever need to know about (laughs) basic mechanics of writing a novel. Um, And so I sat down um, and I, I felt like I already spent enough time typing. I didn't want to do any more typing. I didn't want to you know, get any more carpal tunnel type stuff than I was already risking. And so I figured I'd do it by hand. And so I sat down and I did the first, I think about the first four or five pages by hand, my hand had cramped into this horrible Mm. shriveled claw thing. And I looked at the whole book and I thought, this is impossible. (laughs) Let me just do the first hundred pages. And so I I kept going. I did the first hundred pages. I finally got to the point where I could do 10 and then I think 20 pages uh, at a stretch. And I got to a hundred and I figured, ah, let's go for 200 and sort of (laughs) <laughs> I ended up doing the whole book. So what, was, uh, what do you think was the
3: biggest discovery that you made during that process?
1: Oh, I learned a lot of stuff. I mean, um, yeah, in, in terms of point, I mean, the biggest thing was just how much detail there was. I mean, my my writing tends to be very uh, stripped down and, and spare. And just to see how long a paragraph of description could be. Um, and just a lot of stuff about the way that pronouns are handled. Uh, and point of view. I mean, pronouns and point of view were the big things that I, I was really focused on going through that. Yeah,
3: I'm always I mean, the, it's one of the things that stands out um, to me about his writing as well in, in those books just like how they they are page turners like sparse writing but are so packed full of detail and long passages of description that it's. I, I still can't really wrap my head around how he manages to constructed in a way that that allows it to be so breezy but also really dense and full of interesting stuff um so i'm curious um that sounds i mean so those all sound like very pleasant memories about um interviewing people for the show but (laughs) tell me about some of the challenges what have some of the hardest things been about making the show (laughs) ha ha
2: (laughs) <laughs> uh, well, well, there's one interview guest that, uh, who were who will remain nameless that, uh, ended up not actually appearing on the show, um, because the interview just didn't go well at all. And, uh, by the time we were finished with the interview, um, we're like, we can't air that. And, and even though Dave is a total wizard when it comes to editing audio, there was like no way we were going to be able to save that one, into because I mean, none. Of, I mean, Dave did his usual due diligence, um, making all these inter, uh, interesting interview questions, and but the guy just he didn't have anything interesting to say about any of the uh, any of the you know, like it's like I never really encountered anyone who who was who just didn't really have anything was to like, say was about the process. It was,
3: like, was it hostile or was he just boring? Um,
2: no, it, no it's, I think he it like... may have been high.
3: <laughs> No, no, it's it's like John was saying. He
1: was just obviously a very intuitive person and couldn't say anything analytical about his process. And so it's it's just it's always kind of boring just to hear really highly intuitive people talk about their process because they they're it. just yeah. they just do it and they don't know yeah. how they do it. You know? Um.
3: Well, how about so? What about the technical side of it? Have there been any near miss catastrophes?
1: <laughs> oh God, yeah. I no. I mean, the internet, like dealing with the internet, is the absolute worst part of of doing a. Podcast that relies on interviewing people over the internet, right? um And so, I mean, the the thing that comes to mind for me is, you know, we interviewed Ellen Kushner, and she told us before the interview starts that she had a sore throat, and you know, so could we keep this sh- as short as possible? You know, and work, of course, of course, you know, that's totally understandable. And so, I asked her, um you know, could you just give us a little bit of the history of of the Border Town series? And she opened her mouth, and, and instantly oh, the no. connect my internet died. <laughs> And so I was like, no, no, and it was it was down for about ten minutes, and finally it came back up, and I, I got everyone back on the phone. And she says, uh, so how much of my answer did you get?
0: <laughs> none of it.
1: And I said, okay. well, well, none of it. And she's like, she's like, oh, I've been talking for ten minutes, you know. And uh, so that was, I mean, that was like one of the most, uh, you know, the times I felt the worst. It's, uh, I, it's there was yeah, a, please. I was going to say, um, when we interviewed Neil deGrasse Tyson, we just had a terrible, terrible internet connection. And there are parts in that interview where I literally had to take words, you know, from different parts of the interview and stitch them together into sentences to have some of the things he said be comprehensible.
2: Yeah, actually, it, it's it, it was a bit of a contributing factor to me actually deciding to step down because I was having just like constant internet problems over here and it's just like, my connection would be the cause of all of the problems with, with our Skype calls. And I think I finally got it sorted out now. But, I mean, it really was so frustrating that it was just like, I should just stop doing this because it's like <laughs> I'm ruining everything for everyone else too.
1: Well, and when we re- when we record the panels, we ask all the panelists if they can to record their own audio. And then I can you know put those together on separate tracks. And, and then you don't have to worry about the internet speeds as much. But then everyone, like people never get their thing. They, they screw up recording it somehow or they don't get it to me on time or you know i'm sitting around or they send it to and it's all effed up somehow and uh yeah the the technical stuff is definitely the hardest part is the most time-consuming and just maddening part of doing a podcast
2: well and you know even though i've done this uh 100 episodes now i still manage to do really big (laughs) screw-ups on occasion like we just did a panel the other day that dave actually ended up having to cut me out of completely because my audio (laughs) was completely screwed up um because uh, I was trying like a new setup, and uh, I was like, okay, well, my my microphone wire is actually trapped, and I wanted to move it. Um, and so I was like, okay, I'll just mute my mic, and then I'll untangle this, and then I'll plug my mic in once it's uh, once it's un, uh, unmuted. Uh, but then I, I screwed it all up doing that, and just like ever since that point, um, I like screwed up the whole audio. So uh, yeah, so even even people who should know better. Man, it's it's funny to stuff think all about
3: the um, all of your favorite authors uh, struggling with crappy internet connections. It just for some reason, that seems it <laughs> seems very like uh, you know the president going to the bathroom sort of thing. Like if you don't think about um, you know these sort of like public figures being you know having to deal with the same sort of like bad Wi-Fi that we have to deal with.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think especially since we're on wired, people assume <laughs> that we have far more resources than we actually do. And yeah. we've actually had guests say like, oh should, is this going to be over the phone or should we go to your studio? You know? And like, no, yeah. trust me, there's no studio, you know? Um, so, and a lot of things people complain about in terms of still, you know, people will complain about stiltedness or like weird gaps in the conversation and stuff like 99% of that time. That's, there's some technical problem. That's the cause of that. It's not uh, that we're like natural, that we just don't know how to talk, you know? <laughs>
2: Although we are geeks, although we don't, although we don't know how to talk, what would you say? uh, Is
3: what what do you think is the funniest moment that's ever occurred in either one of the interviews or in the process of making the show?
2: (laughs) I mean, I'm sure there must be plenty of funny things. I mean, um, I know the the Ryan North interview was hilarious. Um, I mean, and that one's coming to mind because it was fairly recent. But I mean, I, I really enjoyed talking to him, and and I just I like loved his book so much, and. Um, and of course he does a webcomic. So I assumed that he would be funny to talk to in person, but it's like, you know, you're never really prepared for how funny somebody might be in person uh, compared to what the, how they are on the page. And so, yeah, I mean, that one was really funny. Um, I mean, it's in terms of, uh, just sort of some random thing that happened. I don't know it, that's a, that's a big question. Uh, anything come to mind, Dave?
1: Well, I mean, I think our, our interview with uh, with Brian Dunning back in episode five uh-huh. of Skeptoid, I think that was one of our that was a certainly that when I listened to that the first time, that was like one of the first episodes that we did. I thought was really funny. And our discussion about, you know, Bigfoot and UFOs and stuff like that uh, uh-huh. is, is really funny. Actually, speaking of the Ryan North uh, interview, though, uh, some I have an outtake from that that's absolutely hilarious because there was uh-huh. just gigantic thunderstorm going on outside my window during that interview. And I was able to edit it out, but if you listen to the unedited version where there's just, we're just trying to talk and there's just like <laughs> super loud lightning bolts going off every 10 seconds, uh, uh I'll, 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 I'll make that available at some point. Uh, it's, it's pretty entertaining.
3: It's like an omen. So yeah. guys, uh, I'm gonna ask you my, this is my final question, which is what can we expect from the next 100 episodes of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy? <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, things are sort of up in the air right now. Um, uh, I mean, I don't actually I mean, we're talking about we're thinking about maybe doing a Kickstarter um, sometime early next year. And depending on how that goes, that will probably determine how many episodes we do in 2014, because, uh, you know, I mean, it's a it's a lot of fun to do the show and. You know, it's, it's so, like I said, it's such a thrill to be able to talk to people on the phone like George R. R. Martin and Richard Dawkins, uh, and I love getting feedback from fans and so on. But it's an, inc- as as maybe you've heard, it's an incredible amount of work on the technical side do, doing a show like this, and especially, you know, reading all the books and prepping for it. Uh, and it's it's definitely, after 100 episodes, reaching a, an unsustainable level of time, uh, you know, time invested to, uh, you know money to support <laughs> my life uh coming out of it so um yeah r- i th- i think really uh it's hard to say at, at, at this point um but but yeah uh probably uh fan support will play a key <laughs> role in determining uh you know how frequently we, we release episodes uh next year
2: yeah i mean i think if uh iTunes sort of got with the program and made something that would let you charge something for podcasts, at least in some capacity. That would probably go a long way towards making podcasts more sustainable because it, it it does seem kind of ridiculous that at this point, you know, you can self publish almost anything now, um, you know, including music, but, uh, there's no way to charge for a podcast. Um, I, I saw recently there was a, there's a new, uh, crowdfunding platform called Patreon, which is sort of like Kickstarter except that um, it's very focused towards serial type projects. So something like a podcast would work where people sign up and they pledge a certain amount every month or every week or whatever it is. Um, and so they can be a patron that way as opposed to just buying like one thing when you're doing a Kickstarter. Um, so I mean, something like that might help. Uh, although, like Dave said, we're planning to uh, maybe do a Kickstarter next year. Um, I mean, I, I, otherwise, I suspect, uh, the show is going to be much the same as it's been, um, continuing to get more awesome. Cause I think, <laughs> um, the, the longer, I mean, except that I won't be there. Um, but you know, because, uh, the thing is, as you, as you continue to build a show like this, the, you know, the more, the more big guests you have on there, the easier it is to get even bigger guests. And so, like, at this point, it's like, I think, like, we've done it. We've interviewed enough. Uh, huge authors that we should really be able to get almost anyone and it's just a matter of time before we get somebody like Neil or or Stephen King or or you know maybe some of the movie people that we'd love to interview um, you know it's like um, plus you know the association with Wired.com it really helps out for that so um, you know I think the sky's the limit to what Keith Sky can do um, it's just a matter of uh, you know how sustainable is it going to be with Dave's uh, <laughs> yeah. Dave's workload
1: well, yeah. And I mean, if you've listen, if you listened since the beginning, uh, you'll see the format has changed a little bit in terms of, you know, we've introduced the guest geeks and then having on two or sometimes even three guest geeks. And I think that's really added a lot to the show. Sure. And like I said, we had absolutely no experience doing this when we started. And I almost feel like the first 100 episodes were kind of practice. And, you know, <laughs> it's like, okay, now we now we're kind of getting the hang of this and getting more comfortable interviewing people and, you know, learning how to moderate a panel with four or five people and stuff like that. And so yeah, I, I really think we could, uh, you know, we can continue to to polish things up and and make the show more and more, uh, you know, professional sounding and, uh, you know, of interest to the community going forward.
3: Well, guys, I want to thank you for uh, indulging me and in my in my desire to interview the two of you on this special occasion. Thank you for letting me be a part of this whole uh, awesome experience and. Uh, congratulations again on, on 100 awesome episodes of Geeks, Guides of the Galaxy.
1: Yeah, thank you, Matt. Yeah, thanks, thanks for, man. Thanks for coming on the show 10 times. Here's we the really 10 appreciate. more
3: in the next 100.
1: <laughs> All right, so I think we're going to wrap things up there. So big thanks to Matt London for doing such a great job as guest host. And of course, big thanks again to Chris Hadfield for being our guest today. Big thanks as well to everyone who's written us nice reviews on iTunes, including Real King who gave us five stars on my birthday last week, which was a nice present for me. Also, a special thank you to everyone who's contributed money to the show through our website, including Paresh Desai and Jonathan Jeloni. Wes Weathersby of SpecterCraft Computing also just became the third person to be making monthly contributions to the show, along with Jason Lind and Kurt Donaldson. As you heard in the panel just now, funding is really the biggest issue facing the podcast, and every bit helps. So huge thanks to everyone who's done that. As I mentioned, we'll probably be doing a Kickstarter early next year to determine how many episodes we can afford to produce in 2014. For updates on that, visit our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. We'd also like to thank all 100 guests who've appeared on the podcast, as well as the 36 different friends of ours who've appeared as guest geeks. Over the past four years, we've produced a total of 128 hours of interviews and discussions, and that represents a huge effort by a huge number of people. So thank you to everyone who's taken the time to get involved. And of course, the biggest thank you of all goes to my best friend and longtime co-host, John Joseph Adams. There would definitely be no Geek's Guide to the Galaxy without John. He was the one who pushed to start the show in the first place, he was the one who lined up all our big interviews, and he was the one with the contacts to get us picked up by major sites like Tor.com, io9, and Wired. There have definitely been times over the past four years when I was ready to give up and John was always the one who talks me into keeping the show going, and when I look back at some of the amazing people we've had the chance to talk to, and some of the really fun conversations we've had with some of our best friends, I'm really glad he did. We honestly don't know at this point exactly how often John will be appearing on the air next year, but he'll definitely be on the show a fair amount, and will continue to be heavily involved behind the scenes. So huge, huge thank you again to John Joseph Adams for everything he's done and continues to do to help make Geek's Guide to the Galaxy a reality. All right, so I think that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Especially folks like Kristen Fredrickson, Tim Ballstad, Zach Chapman, Chris Brown, and Laura Dirks, who have listened to every single episode. Wow. So, huge thanks to all you guys, and we'll see you next year.
0: The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit GeeksGuideShow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit JohnJosephAdams.com or DavidBarrCurrently.com Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate9 Entertainment If you enjoyed this program tell your friends If you didn't enjoy it tell no one Thank you for listening